And so I wanted to give you a sense of where we've been and where we're going. We're making progress, all right? So we've already gone through. The, the, Job has put together, uh, I, I, like so much poetry is, there's a real structure to it. It's really planned out. When you see the symmetry of it, the beauty of it, uh, the way it's put together, there's a, there's, a, you know, there's a beginning, there's an end, there's a middle. And so the prologue is the beginning. So we talked about the four disasters that set the scene. Two of those were from evil people, and then two of them were from weather-related events. And that starts out in, and tells us what Job's situation is. So number two, second one down there is a monologue where Job curses the day he was born. He said, I wish I'd never been born. And then he says, I'd, just, I'd rather die. So he, hope, he curses his birthday, and he hopes for his death day. He wants to be out of here. Then that begins with what we talked about this morning, those three, the three cycles of dialogue between uh, Job's three friends and Job. So, you know, Eliphaz would say something, then Job responds. And then Bildad says something, and Job responds. And then Zophar says something, and Job responds. It's like that from chapters 4 all the way through 27. That, and I didn't want to read all that for you because we don't have time, but it's just kind of the same kind of thing over and over again where they're given, I call it semi-good advice. Uh, that's, it makes it even more dangerous because there's some good advice mixed in with the bad advice. And, uh, to, you know, if you got a half-truth, you, you don't have the truth. And so if you, if you kind of give truth mixed with error, that's often more dangerous uh, and, and more harmful than something that's all error. Um, every conspiracy theory always has some truth to it, and that's why they're so convincing. Uh, I would like to tell all my American friends that. Uh, so you get this dialogue going on between the friends, and they're trying to convince him, oh, Job, you don't, you know, God can't be wrong. So that means you're, you're a sinner, you've sinned somehow, and, and you haven't repented of that sin, so God's punishing you. That's, what, that's why these bad things have happened to you. So, so they think they know why that has happened. All right, so we come to the intermission. That's uh, chapter 28 right now. And uh, so go ahead and turn to chapter 28. It's kind of a hinge uh, in the book, and, and so we'll, we'll focus on that in just a second. But I wanted to go over a few things of review. For instance, I think probably most of you can recall this, but um, what are the two tests? Number one, prosperity. What's the second one? Adversity. All right, so those are the two tests. But then there are two causes. So there's, uh, everybody done, you have any questions about this before I erase it? All right, so two tests, prosperity and adversity. Then there are two causes to every event. There's a, we live in a cause and effect world. If you see an effect, what can you reason? There's a, there's a cause behind it. And so the question why is, why is this happening? In other words, what is the cause of this? And so there, there are several ways to answer that question. So I want to I wanna just kind of explore that with you a little bit because it might, the stuff I go over in the next few minutes are going to, if we understand that, will help us understand the rest of the book of Job. So this is a little, I got a marker down here somewhere. All right. So you got two tests. And the first one is prosperity. And the second one is adversity. Also, you see in Job 
two causes. And theologians have noted a difference uh, in when they look at the way things happen in the world, look at the, how history plays out and what happens in your life, is that there is a first cause, or sometimes called a primary cause, and then secondary causes. Um, so the first cause causes this, and then this causes that, and that's what Job is experiencing, all right? So he's saying, what's caused this? So there's several right answers here. You could say, Satan caused this, right? Because we see Satan's role in this, that God has uh, taken away the hedge. Now Satan is attacking him and taking these things away. Or you could say, well, why are my children dead? Well, the wind caused that, right? Uh, why did I lose my livestock? Well, because evil people came in and stole it and killed my employees and took it. So you, you've got all this, right? So those are, those are secondary causes. You could say, okay, it's, true, it's a true statement. They did. But behind all that, there's something else going on. All right, remember we talked about that uh, Satan is like that dog, on a chain. So what's the first cause? What's the primary cause? So God, who's sovereign over all creation. And so these are means. All of these are into God's control. God controls the wind. I got to believe God controls the wind. I'd hate to live in a world where he doesn't. You know, I, when I pray to God, I pray to a God who has control over all things. And so when I ask him to do things, it's because I believe he really has, he can have, have that kind of effect. So there's a, there's a secondary cause and then there's a primary cause. And behind all this is, is God. And so uh, what Job is saying when you ask why, you can answer, say, well, it's because of Satan or it's because of the wind. Oh, well, well, who's in charge of all this? Well, this, it's God. So the real question is, why did God let this happen? That's what, really what we're after. And so what we look, looked at the, this morning as we covered is we don't know. Hey, let me tell you one of the most mature, the, the older you get in the Lord, the more comfortable you are with saying, I don't know. That's that, you know what? You know who has trouble saying I don't know? People who are insecure. And the younger you are, the more you feel like you got to have all the answers. When I was a young pastor, I used to go in a situation and say, although they're going to ask me a question, I better, I better know. Well, I know, I know so much now that I know I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's always so releasing that I don't have to have all the answers. God never promised all the answers. He never promised to give you the answers. So what we say, okay, well, what's in the mind of God to do this? Okay, now that gets us to something else. There are two causes, there are two tests, there are two causes, but there, this, is gonna, this is gonna blow your mind. So I'm gonna need this room, so I'm gonna take this away. There are two wills of God. Now, what I mean by that is not that they're, con God doesn't contradict himself. He's not saying, uh, I wanna do this. I wanna, God's not schizophrenic. I wanna go left, I wanna go right, I wanna go left, I wanna go right. You know, that, that's, that's not God. What I mean is there are two kinds of wills. Two kinds of wills. And the first theologians have called sometimes the decreed will of God or the secret will of God. 
And the secret will of God is what shall be. So we just sang a song that Jesus is coming back and we want to be ready. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Just, okay, everybody believes that. So you believe that that shall be. That's the decreed will of God. It is God's will that his son return. That he's decreed that that will happen. Let me ask you a question. Does God know the day that Jesus is coming back? Could he come back the day before? No. Could he come back a day after? No. Is there anything that happened that would delay God, deny God, detour God, distract God? No. He has decreed that it shall be. He has ordained. He has ordered it. That this shall be. That's the decreed will of God. All right, there's another will of God, and that is sometimes called the, the moral will of God or the revealed will of God. And what I mean by that is the secret will of God he hasn't told us. Has, it, has, anyone, has God told any of you when Jesus is coming back? I'm glad you didn't raise your hand because I said, you're crazy, right? <laughs> We're crazy people. All right, so you don't, God hasn't told you that. That's his secret. That's the secret will of God. All right, now the revealed will of God is what he reveals to us. It's the moral will of God, and this is what should be. The decreed is what shall be. The moral will of God, the revealed will of God, is what he has revealed should be. I'll give me a classic example, Ten Commandments. It is God's will you shall have no other gods before him. It is God's will that you honor your father and mother. It is God's will that you don't commit adultery. It's your God's will that you don't commit murder. That is the will of God. Can that will be frustrated? Yes. That's what should be. But we often don't do what should be done. The secret decreed will of God cannot be detoured, cannot be distracted, cannot be thwarted, cannot be denied. The moral will of God, the revealed will of God, the, where, where he says this is what should be. Now, now get this. What this means is that even evil acts, like the Sabians stealing your livestock, is part of the decreed will of God. If I say to you, is it God's will that those Sabians stole Job's livestock? Then by the decreed will of God, you have to say, yeah, that was God's decreed will. If I say to you, was that his moral will? You would say, what? No, that's not the way it should be. They violated, they violated the moral law of God. See, y'all are getting like really top grade philosophy here. So, and I saved this for right after lunch, <laughs> at which there was a lot of pasta, by the way. Just, which, by the way, do you know what a fake noodle is? An impasta. Okay. Do you have dad jokes in Canada? You know what dad joke is? I love telling dad jokes. And sometimes he laughs. All right, so you'll get that later. Um, so when we say what should be, um, we're saying this is what God wants you to do, but you can, you can disobey God. And, and we, how often do you disobey God? How, how many of you disobey God already this morning, today? 
all of us. Uh, we've all fallen short. Anyone care to share? No. <laughs> all right, so that's the decreed will of God. Now, now get this. God daily permits in his decreed will what does not please him in his moral will. He daily permits in his decreed will what does not please him in his moral will. So when he permits the Sabians to come in and steal livestock and kill his employees, he permits that in his decreed will, but it does not please him in his moral will. And those who disobey him will, be, will have to give an account to him. For as we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe that Jesus Christ, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And, and when he comes again, there will be this judgment. So that's what I mean by the two wills of God. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit because it's really, really important, a really important concept. Um, so let me go back to the two causes here. Here's a ping pong ball at rest. But if it moves across the table, that's an effect. What caused it? Well, because I'm such an artist, you'll know what this is. What's that? That's the paddle. And you could say, why did the ping pong ball move across the table? And you could say, what caused that was the ping pong paddle. And, then, and you'd be right. But you're not all right. Because that's a secondary cause. What's the first cause? A hand. See? I know if you want me to do your portrait later, I'll... I'll <laughs> i got to be careful. I think i got all the fingers on there. All right. The hand... That holds the paddle. And over and over again you see in scripture God doing this in history. When he wants to discipline his people, the nation of Israel, what does he do? And it says specifically in Isaiah, this is what he does. That he raises up a nation called Babylon to spank his people. And Babylon thinks they did it. And in the same verse, in the same passage, context... Isaiah the prophet then warns Babylon, don't get proud because God is going to judge you for what you did. Because it's in the decreed will of God that Babylon should invade and murder his people. But he permits what does not please him. Then he's going to hold those Babylonians responsible for their sins against his people. Anybody, anybody get, get your mind blown yet? This has really helped me. To understand that there are two kinds of will, wills of God. The, the decreed will, the secret will, and then the, the uh, revealed will. All right. So you want to you see this in scriptures? Do, do you want to see this fleshed out? Let me give you another example. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had how many sons? He had, he had, a, he had a dozen from which we eventually had 12 tribes. And they actually had more. Another one, Joseph, who was the youngest one. So Joseph is the youngest son among all his brothers. And remember what the Bible says, that Jacob really loved Joseph and favored him so much uh, that the other brothers got jealous. And remember that story? And, and in fact, uh, the Jacob gave to his son Joseph a coat of many colors and, and said, oh, I love my son, Joseph. And the other brothers are like, we have had it up to here with Joseph, right? There's some serious sibling rivalry going on. And by the way, part of it's because they got different mamas. Uh, you know, there's anyone who ever is for polygamy has never read the Bible. Yes, the Bible reports polygamy 
and, and nobody's happy with it, all right? And it just messes up everything. And so, so you got these, these 12, out of these sons come the 12 tribes. So Joseph is the baby, and he's favored. So they come, uh, come up with this plan. We're going to get rid of him. And they said, let's kill him. And, uh, ah, well, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him down in this well, and we'll take his coat, and we'll take it back to our dad. We'll get some blood from a goat and put it on there and say, oh, you know, he, he's dead. Uh, he's gone. And uh, one of the brothers felt real bad about it. Later, he went back to get his brother <coughs> out of the well. And uh, <coughs> I'm sorry, just coughing into the microphone. Just a little COVID I brought with me. Don't worry. <laughs> and... Uh, I hope not. Uh, so the, he, he gets his brother out of the well, and there's a caravan going to Egypt, and he sells his brother Joseph. He said, we might as well make some money out of the deal. That we, you know, we kill two birds here with one stone. And so they sold Joseph to this caravan. They go down to Egypt. Egypt gets sold to a guy named uh, Potiphar. And as a young man, he's working for Potiphar. Potiphar is a pretty powerful guy in the government. And Potiphar has a wife. We'll call her Mrs. Potiphar. And you know the story. Joseph is this young, good-looking guy. She starts coming on to him. And she says, sleep with me, sleep with me every day. And finally, uh, he gives in to the temptation. No, he doesn't. She, you would think, I mean, that, that, would, that would be like the, the great situation, right? But he says, no, how can I sin against my God? And so she gets mad because he doesn't give in to the temptation. And so she says, uh, sleep with me, grabs his clothes. He runs out, leaves, you know, clothes tear off. And he leaves and she starts screaming, uh, he sexually assaulted me and he gets thrown in prison. So now he's in prison. Now let me, let me just stop for a second. Just think about being Joseph. You've done everything right. You try to be faithful. You've been a good son. You get thrown in a well. Then you get sold into slavery. You go down to Egypt. Now you go, oh, I got a good job with this guy named Potiphar. This is great. And then Potiphar has his wife. Now you're in prison. And you're sitting there in prison thinking, what? God? What is he asking? Why? I don't get it. I, I just don't. I've tried to do. I've tried to be good. I've tried to obey, I've tried to trust you, and this is what I get. So he's in prison, and then eventually, long story short, remember there's, there's other guys in prison, the cupbearer, king's cupbearer and baker and all that stuff. And one of them has a dream, and they find out that Daniel knows, I mean that uh, Joseph knows how to interpret dreams, and uh, so um, the Pharaoh has a dream, and the cupbearer who gets out of jail goes, oh, I know this guy in prison, and you know, I'm sure you've used that line a lot, hey, I knew this guy in prison, and uh, <laughs> So uh, he knows how to interpret dreams. So they get him out of prison and he interprets the dream. And the dream is, uh, the interpretation of the dream is, here's what's going to happen in Egypt. There are going to be really seven great years and there's going to be a bumper crop. We're going to have plenty of wheat and uh, plenty of bread. Everything's going to be great. They're going to be followed by seven years of famine and drought and there isn't going to be anything. So here's what you need to do. You need to, with your bumper crops, you need to be, build big old barns and you need to store all of this wheat to get ready for the seven years of drought. And Pharaoh said, okay, I think I'll do that. And so he made Joseph second in command. All right, now, meanwhile, his brothers are thinking he's dead or he's been sold into slavery and they all grow up and they get older. Well, sure enough, the seven, the seven years of, of drought come and the drought extends not only from Egypt all the way through what we call today the Mideast and there's no food up in the promised land where the brothers are and they hear oh they got grain in Egypt so they go down to get grain from Egypt and they come long story short they come into contact uh that's Joseph 
and we are in trouble if he figures out who we are. So they're really afraid of him. He said, you don't have to be afraid. In fact, uh, here's what I want you to do. Uh, go back and get my dad and, and uh, get all the brothers and bring all the family, bring the wives and children down here to Egypt because I'll take care of you down here. So that's what they did. And so Jacob comes with the rest of the family, and uh, that's how the Jews got down into Egypt. And then Jacob dies, and the brothers are thinking, this is it. This is it. He's going to kill us. The only reason he kept us alive so far was because our dad was alive. Now, now some of you are way ahead of me because you know your Bibles, but, but just to remind you, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 50, and I want you to see what Joseph says to his brothers who are afraid now that, that Joseph is going to kill them. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he said, let me, let me go to actually verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I... Am I your judge? Am I the one you finally have to give an account to? I'm not God. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Therefore, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, are kept alive so that we can eventually get the scriptures and the Savior. If they had died in Israel, we would not have either the scriptures or the Savior. But God, in his sovereignty, incorporated into his decreed secret will the disobedience and sin and evil acts of evil men. And he says, you meant it for evil because it was. Attempted murder is evil and kidnapping and selling his slave. That's evil. But God meant the same thing, this evil act for good. Which means God permits in his decreed will what does not please him in his moral will. That's an example. Um, you want to see another one? What are you going to say, right? No, Steve, we don't. I mean, that's what you're here for, right? So... Um, that was Joseph. Joseph is, in, in the Old Testament, I can't think of anyone uh, who is a better example of a godly person than Joseph because every other character in the Bible has these major flaws. You know, oh, we want to be like David. Uh, you know, I want to be a man after God's own heart, like David, who committed adultery and murdered Bathsheba's husband, that David. But you can't find anything like that with Joseph. Uh, the closest you can get is maybe he went, you know, said, hey, look at my coat. You know, that's about, that's about it. But, but he comes the closest to, to, being, to being like who? Jesus. Now, remember I told you the, the whole Bible is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. And, and in the Old Testament, you have foreshadowing and types and pictures of Jesus. They're all over the place. But think about Joseph. Righteous, falsely accused, his enemies conspire against him, even his own brothers. Who, who was it who was most opposed to Jesus? The Jews, his own brothers. Uh, falsely accused, um, 
put in a position where he has to forgive those who, who have now sinned against him. And this terrible, terrible thing that was done against him actually turns out for the good of millions. So who's that remind you of? All right, so, so you say, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that it was God's will for Jesus to be murdered? That's, yeah, the answer is, yeah. <laughs> so Brittany and Wayne uh, know what I'm going to say next because we have this missionary in Serbia. His name is Jarko. And uh, so Jarko uh, is a good friend of mine. He's a pastor there in Serbia. Grew up in former Yugoslavia. And his favorite, whenever I ask him a question, his favorite response to me is, Pastor Steve, yes and no. Yes and no. Is it God's will that his son be murdered? Yes and no. It was in God's decreed will that his son be murdered. He permitted in his decreed will what did not please him in his moral will because you shall not commit murder. So everyone who is part of that murder from Pilate to Caiaphas and all of their minions will stand in the judgment and give an account for murdering the Son of God. It was in God's secret will, but not his moral will. He said, I, I just need that spelled out. All right, well, turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. This is that famous passage. Now remember, Isaiah is writing this 750 years before Jesus is born. And yet in Isaiah 53, you see a description of a Roman crucifixion. And you, you'll always, and even the New Testament authors go back to Isaiah 53. This was talking about Jesus Eight centuries before it happened. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. What? Smitten by who? God. Wait a minute, he was not smitten by God. He was smitten by Roman soldiers. Yes and no. He was smitten by Roman soldiers. He was smitten by God. And God even used as an instrument of his decreed will, Roman soldiers, he was smitten by God. It was God's will. Who killed God's son? God killed God's son. Wow. The only reason I say that, I didn't make that up. The only reason I'd say that, the only thing standing in my way of not saying that is the Bible. He was smitten by God, verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, this is where the prosperity guys say, by his stripes we are healed. Jesus died on the cross so we could be healed. I have no problem with that. I believe with all my heart that because Jesus died on the cross that there will be total and full healing. I believe that, that the elder in my church who died 24 hours ago is completely healed. 
My big problem with prosperity theology is not so much what they promise, but when they promise it. It's timing. This does not mean that, um, that if you believe in Jesus, have enough faith, you'll never get sick and die. Otherwise, there'd be a bunch of 400-year-old prosperity preachers walking around. Have you ever noticed that? You know what happens to them? They die. When the life insurance actuary says they're going to die. They don't live to be 400 years old. They don't even believe their own stuff. But they get other people to give them money for it. So, so he says, by their stripes, by his stripes we're healed. Yeah, we're healed. Spiritually, emotionally, and physically. But that comes later. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's he talking about? 750 years before he's born. He's talking about Jesus. Everybody knows that. No one disputes that. Look what it says in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was God's will that Jesus be crushed like grapes in the press and his blood spilled. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, remember, we drink this cup to remember that his body was crushed and his blood was spilled for us. By his stripes we were healed. Our transgressions is what he died for, for he died in our place. That's the Old Testament. What does the New Testament say about it? Now turn to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John have just been released for prison. They went to prison, they went to jail because they were preaching the gospel. And they said, stop preaching the gospel, so they threw him in jail. And uh, they, you know, they were commanded not to preach the gospel, and they said, you know, we've we got to obey God rather than men because God is a higher authority. So, but then they were released, and the, the, one of the reasons they're released is because God moves them to be released, and God has been moved by the prayers of the church that have gathered together to pray for Peter and John. And so some people will say to me, hey, do you believe in a sovereign God? And you believe this, this is going to happen? God already knows it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And if you believe that, then why do we pray? Were you, ever ask, were you asking that question? Anybody have that question? And when people say, well, well if, it's, if God already knows he's going to come to Christ, then why do we pray? And so my answer is, uh, the God who ordains the ends ordains the means by which he accomplishes the ends. And therefore, God said, pray, we pray. And he has chosen to move in response to the prayers of his people. That's even incorporated into his plan. He says, so out of obedience, he says, pray, so we pray. And secondly, the God who ordains that end, ordains the means by which he accomplishes it, so we pray. And we share the gospel. And we're, we're faithful. And then God takes us as an instrument, as secondary causes, to have the effect that he wants in the people's lives. All right, so... So here's what happens. They're praying, and it says in uh, chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 24, when they heard it, that they had been released, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, so God is sovereign, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage, the apostles, uh, the, the people's plot in vain? So this is quoting Psalm 2. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So you anointed Jesus, God the Father anoints his son, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and people. So Herod representing the Jews, Pontius Pilate representing the Gentiles, uh, and he says, and the peoples of Israel to do, now watch this, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, this was the decreed will of God, the Pilate and Caiaphas, the Jews and the Gentiles commit this heinous act of murder and conspiracy and false accusation. Every, every law in the Ten Commandments just got broken when Jesus was murdered. That was the decreed will of God, and yet it did not please him. All right, those are the two wills of God. You see it in Joseph, you see it in Jesus, Jesus uh, and, you, and, and you see it all the way, all the way through the Bible. This is a really heavy topic for right after lunch on Sunday. You, and, and there's an expression where I come from, he looked like a cow staring at a new gate. <laughs> That's why some of you look right now. <laughs> All right, and the reason is I just gave you some heavy-duty theology here. Most, most Christians never hear this stuff, unfortunately. Uh, but I, I tell you, it underlies all of what you read in Scripture. Once, you, once that, for me, it unlocked everything when I started to understand that. And, and then it helps you understand Job. So what Job is going to say, now, now we're back to Job 28. And uh, to give you a sense of what's happening here. Let's see. This is the intermission part. And it's kind of a break in the action. So here's, here's the way it goes. And it's, and it's really beautiful poetry there's this it's just filled with all kinds of uh meaning here but he says surely there's a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore so in hebrew in hebrew poetry there are couplets so the first couplet you got two of them in, in verse one surely mine is for silver so this is called hebrew parallelism mine is for silver and a place for gold so you got silver and gold now notice this Silver and gold are precious metals, but then you get to iron and copper. Look at verse 2. Iron is taken out of the earth. Copper is smelted from the ore. They're valuable not because they're precious metals, but because they're practical metals. You don't make plows out of gold. It, gold's too soft. Gold's a precious metal. But iron is a valuable metal because it's practical. So iron and copper. And what he's saying is, you go down in these mines, and he's, he's saying human wisdom is able, even, you know, uh, what is this, nearly 4,000 years ago, the mining was something that people did, and they figured out a way to get down in the earth and get all this valuable stuff. And, and basically what he's saying is, that's the way wisdom is. And, and where gold and silver and iron, it's what is it until there's a mine, what is it? It's hidden. It's hidden. It's secret. You, you know, it's underneath the earth. It's in the earth. Now, what does a mine do? It opens it up and reveals it. So you got the hidden will of God and you got the revealed will of God. So wisdom is, is when God opens things up to us and reveals. We wouldn't know anything about God except what he reveals to us. Okay? So, so he said there's this, there's this mine and you go down and then he mentions stones. He says in verse 6, its stones are the place of sapphire. It has dust of gold. The path, that path no bird of prey knows. 
I mean, you haven't seen any eagles in a mine lately, right? The falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. There's no lions in the mine, right? And, and so the lions rule the land. The falcons rule the sky. So he's going the whole gamut of creation here. Man puts his hand to the, the, the flinty rock, overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks. He dams up, verse 11, he dams up streams so they don't trickle. The thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. So uh, without reading more Hebrew poetry, because I know I'll lose you for sure if I go much further on that. It, let me, this is why I gave you a handout. So this is for your own study later on. Let me just work through the handout quickly with you. So what this intermission, chapter 28, is saying is wise people know that God knows what he's doing. That's, that's what's... That's what he's saying. God knows what he's doing. And a wise person is, a, is the person who goes to God and does the work of, of mining. So 6.1, treasures are found in, here's the way that the progression of the argument. Treasures are found in the earth with the creation, but wisdom is not found in the earth with the creation. Wisdom is found in heaven with the creator. So the summary of 28 is this, this is this wisdom chapter. It serves as a hinge in the book of Job as Job observes that wisdom is not like a valuable mineral because it cannot be found in the earth. But in another sense, wisdom is like a valuable mineral because it is hidden from us. True wisdom is not found in creation, but in the creator. Now that's huge because we live in a world where everybody's trying to find wisdom where? In the creation. This is what Romans 1 says. Their futile hearts were darkened, darkened because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped what? The creature rather than the creator. And this is the height of foolishness is that we seek our pleasure, our joy, our meaning, and our purpose in what God has made instead of the maker. That's why as rich as you get, you will never be satisfied. Uh, Jeff Bezos is in the process. I don't know if it's gone through yet. He's buying Twitter. I thought about buying Twitter, but I said, nah. I mean, what is it, like $40 billion? He, 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 I, don't, I mean, Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk. Yeah, Bezos, Musk, whatever. Amazon. But, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you for straightening that. I, uh, so, yeah, so Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, and he just bought Twitter. And... And I'm thinking, is it, you didn't have enough? You didn't, it's like the guy said, how much is enough? Well, just a little bit more, you know, that, and that's it. And so we seek our wisdom and our joy and our purpose, and in, 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 that's, what, that's what Job is saying. Uh, where are you going to find wisdom? Well, it's not on the earth. It's in heaven. And so that's why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, as it says in Job and in Psalms and Proverbs. All right, then that leads into a monologue by Job. So there's no dialogue. He's not interacting with his friends. And basically in 29 through 31, this is 7.1, he's going to say, I long for the past when the Lord gave and I accepted good from God. And I loathe the present when the Lord is taken away and I accept the trouble. It's more that uh, I just, I want to die. You know, I wish I was never been born. Uh, 7.3, I'm innocent. No one can bring any charges against me. It's the same argument over again. And then the summary is this. It's not sinful to be wealthy. Job talks in this section about how he used his wealth to help the poor back when he had it. And if you're wealthy, you shouldn't feel guilty for being wealthy. If God's made you wealthy, rejoice. 
But know this, to whom much is given, much is required. It's not, it's not sin to be wealthy. It's sin to be wealthy and not realize where it came from. And you think it's yours? And no, the same God who gave you that wealth can take that wealth away anytime he wants. And you've got to live like that. So you're a steward. It's not yours. It's his. And, and people say, well, it's my money. I can do what I want with it. No, it's God's money. He's entrusted it to you. And you better be investing it in eternity. Uh, because you invest in Twitter, I'm telling you, 10,000 years from now, it will not matter. The only thing that matters, I told our church family a couple of weeks ago, it was on Mother's Day. Was that last week? I told them last week. <laughs> uh, what's going to matter 100 years from now? It, it will not matter 100 years from now if you taught your ch- kids to read a book well or throw a ball or kick a ball or get into the best college or to have a really good career and make a lot of money. The only thing that's going to matter 100 years from now is whether they follow Jesus. That's all that's going to matter. So, so, so what Job is saying, he's seen the, you know, the, the futility of that kind of life. And so he used his wealth. He's saying, Lord, I use my wealth to, to glorify you. So it's not wrong to be wealthy. Uh, Job used his status to encourage others. That's, you read that section, and he's, he's recounting that. He took great care to give a life of integrity in these days of blessing. It was easy to believe that God is good then, but by maintaining his innocence, though, his friends believe he's inc- indicting God, and if, God, if Job is innocent, they reason that God must not be good, and so that's why they, they're getting on to Job. Then this other guy shows up. His name is Elihu, and, it, and he just, out of nowhere, we thought there were three friends, but there's actually a fourth. And the reason is he hadn't said anything yet. He's, he's the youngest of them all because the oldest speaks first. Now he's the youngest one. And when you're young, you know everything, right? Got it all figured out. I, I remember, and I know Wayne had this experience as well, as well. When I was a youth pastor, when I first started becoming youth pa- pastors right after college, and I was a youth pastor in a church in Houston, Texas, and uh, I went right out of college, not married, don't have any kids, and I used to have parent conferences where I'd tell parents how to raise teenagers. <laughs> That's stupid, you know? That I, they were so loving and kind, and, and, and they'd say, they'd just nod their head, and they'd, I know what they're thinking, he'll grow up, he'll, he'll figure it out someday. Right? So here, here's Elihu, and he's the younger man, and he gives all this wisdom, blah, blah, blah. So here's a summary of that, 8.5. Traditionally, the older men held a place of high honor and spoke first while younger men listened. Elihu has been so quiet that we didn't even know this fourth friend is present. And Elihu is angry at Job for insinuating God is in the wrong based on prosperity theology. And he's angry at the three friends for not identifying Job's secret sin. Like the other three friends, Elihu is right in saying that God brought Job's suffering. But he's wrong in arrogantly thinking he knows why God brought Job's suffering. Elihu is right in saying that God punishes the wicked, but wrong about when God, when God punishes the wicked. That, this gets back to Hugh Hefner, right? Hugh Hefner, Hugh Hefner now knows the truth. And he will know the truth for eternity. So, so this is where they, this is, this is a real important point here. In the progress of Revelation... Later believers will have a clear understanding of the final judgment, yet much of what Elihu says is accurate, and Paul quotes him favorably. Now, here's the point I'm going to make 
to, for us to leave. And this, this is what I'm going to leave you with so you bring it back tomorrow to have this in mind. If you had to teach your children about eternity, about heaven and hell, about the final judgment of what the future holds, and all you had was Genesis... What could you teach them? And, and don't feel bad if you can't think of anything because there's nothing there. What, what about what happens after you die? What, what, can you, what can you say from the book of Genesis about what happens to you after you die? About the final judgment, about heaven and hell, about all these things? And the answer is, there's, there's just not much there. Job is living in an era where you don't have a Bible. Where, are you, where do you go now if you want to teach your kids about heaven and heaven, heaven and hell? Well, the teaching of Jesus, uh, the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament. I'm sorry. And, and, is there some, did you guys have a question? Oh, I didn't know if you had a question or not. Oh, Okay. So in, in, the, in, the, in the difference between heaven and hell and the final judgment, where you get to go to the New Testament. They don't have a New Testament. And so, so this, is, this is how when this fuller revelation comes into the back at the New Testament, you start to understand something. And Paul says things like to the believers, he said that this trial that you're going through is a momentary light affliction. But here's, so here's what happens. When in Job's day, they had this real shadowy understanding about what happens after death. It's like, where do they go? You go to the grave, and, and the, but the heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff is not there. So that comes later, with, especially with the teaching of Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is, this, let's say you live 70 years, all right? That's 70 years on the time span. Okay, now then you die. And, and when you die... As a believer, what happens, what happens after you die? You go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And, and you await the final resurrection. This is the inter intermediate state. We know all this because of Revelation in the New Testament. So what happens after you die is you go into eternity and you are with the Lord, the Bible says, forever. So here's what it looks like. Sorry, Wayne. <laughs> All right, so I keep, I keep going, I keep going, I keep going. Because forever is forever. It's forever. Now watch this. For the unbeliever who dies in their sin, this is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. 70 years on this earth is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. So you can see why they're going for the gusto, right? Because that's all you get. But for the believer, this is the closest that you ever get to hell. As bad as it gets on this earth, that's as close as you'll ever get to hell. And you'll spend eternity. This is what Paul calls a momentary and light affliction. And then there's a judgment. And so what Jesus does is prepares you for that judgment. He wraps you up in his righteousness so God accepts you for Christ's sake. 
and then you spend all eternity with him. This is where the healing takes place. This is by, by his stripes you're healed. This is, this is why Naboth, when Naboth died, you know, the day Naboth died, he, in his life, he gets killed by Jezebel. Uh, and it's like, what, what? And he's dying and thinking, I, and he didn't see justice on the earth. Will he see justice? He will see justice. Your eye of the Hittite, David says, uh, you know, I want your wife. I'm going to have you killed. He, he's, doing, he's trying to be a good soldier. He didn't see justice. But, but see, that's what the final judgment does. It makes everything right. Um, and so that's why when you have this later revelation, what we're going to see in the book of Job, the way it ends, it ends resolved. But we'll show you, show you how it's resolved then. Now, here's, here's the thing about this. Once you understand this, it gives you hope. You know what hope is? Hope is the, is the commitment. Hope is the conviction that no matter how bad things are right now, it's going to get better. So in the South United States where I live, it gets really, really hot and really, really humid. And this, we're starting the time of year where when you go out to your truck or your car and it's sitting in the parking lot and it's been out there all day and the sun, that southern sun has been shining in the parking lot, it is 6,000 degrees inside your car. You get inside the car and you put your hands on the wheel and you burn your hands. It's so hot. But you sit there and you, you turn on the air conditioning. What comes out? Hot air. You're blasted by hot air. That's what comes out. Why do you sit there? Why do you persevere? Why do you stay the course? Hope. No matter how bad things are right now, it's going to get better. No matter how bad things are right now, I'm telling you, it gets better. And it gets better forever. And this is, this is where everything gets turned upside down. This is why Jesus told the story about the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man had everything good in his life, long life, rich. He dies and he goes to hell. Lazarus is poor, has a hard life, and he dies and goes to be with the Lord. And he just gets turned upside down. That's how the final judgment fixes the problem of evil and suffering. Father, I pray that you would help us to let this soak into our hearts and minds and understand that this life is really, really brief. We think it's long. We think our suffering is going to last forever. We think it's terrible. and it's uh, In the scheme of things, in an eternal perspective, really it's short. It's like a vapor. And uh, eternity means everything. The promise uh, that Jesus gave that those who believe in him will have eternal life uh, is what gives us hope, the hope of a resurrection, the hope that this will all be made right. And so we trust you in these things, and we ask for you to give us more faith and more trust as we move forward for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.